What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Dream Big, Play Bigger podcast, where we explore the space between the vision or the dream and the actions it takes to get there. And, uh, you know, we've shifted our conversation a little bit from entrepreneurship, business, kind of going after the big things you want to do. What most people are interested in right now with everything going on with the virus and how everybody's responding is it's come up to the surface for a lot of people on where you lack your ability to take care of yourself and your family, right? Sustainability. Um, you may have come from a family that this was a daily practice and it's just skipped a generation. For every person on the planet, this was a daily practice only just a couple of decades ago. And something like this where everything kind of comes to a grinding halt, we get left wondering, how can I take care of my family and myself and those around me? And what skills do I need to reinvest in learning to be able to do that at least on a basic level, right? So the last guy, time you guys joined me, I had a conversation on gardens. And today I'm actually with my cousin, Jason Spencer. He's a West Jordan fire captain and an avid hunter. And I couldn't think of anybody better, Jason, to have on this and have you join me. <laughs> so Everybody. thanks for being here. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. And so some of you guys are joining from the Return to Sustainability Facebook group where we talk about harvesting, hunting, uh, gardening, and storing. And so in this episode, Jason's going to visit with us. I'm going to have you share with us, Jason, some of the basics of hunting. And, and we may have you on again to talk more in advance as we go. But right now, yeah. some people are like, oh, crap, I've never hunted a day in my life. This is something that I've thought about doing, and now more than ever, I can see the importance, right? And for, for hunters like you, you know the, the importance of sustainability, right? And, and um, harvesting your game in certain seasons and why that matters and how that actually benefits nature. There's so much misinformation about there that hunters are the, the big bad wolf, and, and the reality is when done responsibly, it actually is a benefit to – the game in certain areas, right? So, uh, Jason, first off, why don't you tell us a little bit about your, what got you into hunting, your background? I mean, you've traveled all over the country and hunted different games. So what is it for you that you really uh, value out of that, out of that lifestyle? Well, the, the first part I would say is I got to spend time with my friends and mainly my dad and getting to learn about, you know, things about being outdoors, what, what to do if you're, caught somewhere you know how do you, my dad would take me to a spot and stop and say okay how do you get back to the truck uh, you know so I got to learn lots of lessons about we would stop somewhere it'd be snowing and he'd say okay start a fire and you're like uh I, I don't have anything he goes well who's false that and he says if something happens you break your leg you're by yourself because I do a lot of hunting by myself I'm out there by myself a lot so if I don't learn these lessons you know like which so if you're lost right now what would you do to get out if you had to signal somebody, what would you, you know? Little things like, like that was good. So I got to spend a lot of time with my dad, who's you know my mentor, who's you know helped me throughout my life with teaching me this stuff. But it's also nice when you get to come home and you get to grind up your own hamburger, you get to make your own steaks, you get to do all of the stuff that comes with it. So it's a emotional thing for me because I when you're out there by yourself, when you're out there with a group of people, you get to experience things that a lot of city folks, you know, not saying that is bad, but a lot of people that have never done it, they never get the chance to do this. It'd be the same thing of, you know, people who mountain bike or ski or anything else, but you're by yourself, you get that serenity and you get to do it. You get to be one-on-one -on -one with nature and you know, you get the coldest of days, the hottest of days, 
you know, steep mountains, flat deserts, hot, everything you can imagine, I, I've got to participate in, and I love it. So for me, it's something that started off really young because I wanted to be with my dad, tramped around the hills ever since I've been able to walk, you know, and we fished and hunted and hiked, and, you know, it's, it's a great time to spend, you know, with, with other people that have done this and learn from, learn the, the things that I'm trying to, you know, uh, move towards my daughters now. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's, it, it, and I, I talk to tons of people and I work at a gun store downtown and I talk to people, you know, hunting seasons all the time. And it's, you know, I help them out with different guns and different loads and where to go and think, you know, I, I help people get permits all the time with the permit application process, which is kind of a lottery system, you know, and not one state does it the same as like Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, Idaho, Montana, all the Western states, none of them do them the same. They all have the basic system, but every one of them has different ways and different times. Sometimes you put money in, sometimes you don't put much money in. So it just depends on which way and, and what you're actually working for to, you know, to get those things done. So. Yeah, man. And we could have a whole nother show just on the lessons learned while hunting. Like you mentioned, I mean, that, that didn't even cross my mind. Cause it's something for me being military is kind of natural, but you nailed it. There, knowing how to find your way back where, I mean, where, where North is, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, I, when I take out young kids, I will stop and do those same things to them. I will stop there and say, okay, let's say you can't use your leg no more. You just fell down and broke your leg. What are you going to do? Do you have food? Do you have water? What, how do you get out? What would you do? You know, in, in some places, it's, you know, some places, it's not hard to get out. Some places, there's plenty of people. Certain places, you may be the only person there for days. Yeah. You know, so it's, and I ask these kids, like, start a fire. They're like, well, it's not good to start a fire. So I don't care. You know, I find a spot that's safe and say, start a fire. And being a fireman, I'm not going to let it get out. Of, you know, I'll just start a little one. So they know how to start it, but I want to see if you actually have something with you. Yeah. And it's little lessons like that of telling them where, how do you get out of here? How are you lost? Those kind of things are invaluable when you're even, uh, when you're in a spot that doesn't have mountains that you can use as directionals. Like if you're out in Kansas, Nebraska, stuff where it's flat, it is hard. When you're in a bunch of corners, it's hard to see, where you're supposed to go, which way's north, which way's south, it, it it's a different thing with that. You know, in places that have tons of trees for a canopy, for like uh, Arkansas, uh, you know, different, you know, Kentucky, where you can't see where you're at, you got to know different things on how to get out of places. Yeah. So, yeah, that's crazy. I went to Basic in Fort Leonard with Missouri, and the trees yeah. were so thick. And I mean, they're so tall and so thick. It's not like being in the West where you can just look and see, oh, there's that mountain range. That's familiar. I know. I mean, it's, it all looks the same. Every trunk looks the same. And you, if you're not aware, you won't know where you're at. So yeah, that makes perfect. Exactly. Um, so today we'll focus uh, on the conversation about how to pick the caliber of rifles for the certain kind of game you're using on. So let's start with that. What, what's that rifle you have there with you right now? This one right here is a, this is a hot rod. This is a, a different, you know, this is the one that I got for my daughters because one of my daughters used the same caliber in a rifle last year and she wanted to have the exact same caliber. She went, 
and it's a 6.5 by 300 Weatherby. A okay. lot of people have heard of a 6.5 Creedmoor because it's extremely popular right now. This is basically a 6.5 Creedmoor on steroids. It's just a lot. This is the, as a factory gun, that's the fastest 6.5 available. Okay. But realistically, in most cases, I like it because it's ballistically superior for a lot of things. It's a very flat shooting cartridge. It hits hard. But for most people, especially those that are starting out, having a gun that you're comfortable with, that's lighter on recoil, that is going to do the job. If you're going to deer hunt or antelope hunt, for instance, a, you know, a smaller animal, anything from a 243 all the way to a 300 wind mag, you know, it depends on how much recoil you want to absorb. But any of those will be able to handle something like that. But if we just focus on like a 270 or a 30-06 or a 7 mag, you know, those are three really, really popular calibers. Any of those are going to be able to take anything in North America from, you know, you know uh, moose all the way down to antelope, you know, coos deer in Arizona, things like that. They will handle it. But what I like to do is have certain calibers for certain guns or, or certain calibers for certain specific animals that I'm hunting. If you're going to hunt antelope, for instance, a lot of times it's harder to get close to them because they've got extremely good eyesight. And as soon as they get pushed around a little bit, they're very wary and you can't get close to them for five, 600 yards a lot of time or further. So having a, like this six, five is very fast and flat. The, the chance of missing narrows down versus mm -hmm. like a 308, which is an extreme, I would guess that the 308 is probably the most popular big game cartridge in America. Okay. It's, I have one, I, I shoot one. It's an extremely accurate rifle. They can handle it. You can shoot elk with them. You can shoot moose with them, but they are hampered a little bit in longer distance. But for the average person going out, you're going to shoot one, two, three, maybe 350, 400 yards especially if you're trying to get food and you're trying to do, you don't want to shoot and miss. You don't want to shoot and make a bad shot. You want to be able to hit the animal, put it down and be done because that's going to give you better, you know, a better yield on your meat. It's going to taste better. And, uh, it's, it, you know, it, it's better for the animal. It's better all the way around the closer you can get and the better shot you can make, which obviously the closer you are, the better it's going to happen. Right. So on something like that, a 308 would be, phenomenal for you know and same thing with like six five creedmoor that's so popular but on something like that this is going to get a lot less drop so if for further distances that's what this you know is is better for got it but, and so uh for you what's what would you say your average shots are when you're doing uh when you're hunting is there, my is there yeah my average shot was uh i shot a bull elk last year at 186 that's that one that's on your picture and I shot that with a 65300. Uh but most of the other ones I uh I would dare say the average shot is between 250 and 400 yards. Okay. It's somewhere somewhere right there. You okay, know, got so, it. You know, I do long range, I do short range, I do all sorts of stuff. That's a that's a spot where any modern high caliber rifle will work perfect anywhere from the 243 all the way up to those bigger magnums, any of those will work for deer, elk, that kind of stuff, as long as the shot placement is right. Yeah, got it. Cool, okay. So so those calibers you were speaking of earlier is about average for where the hunters are going to be uh, anyway inside that yeah. zone. 
Okay, yeah. cool. And, and, that's, and that's out here in the West. If you go further to the East, like you're talking around Missouri, that kind of stuff, the, you're not going to shoot 400 yards out there very often. You're going to shoot <laughs> 50, 100, something like that. So it's, it's a different ball game there than it is out here, out in the West. Yeah. So it, it just depends on where you're at, what you're doing, what calibers will work best for you. Yeah. But uh, got it. Cool. Okay. Um, and you were kind of mentioning that that you want to have you want to make sure your shots are accurate. So yes. you want to have the right caliber because if they're not, I mean, one, you miss your your shot, and so then you're not harvesting and feeding your family. Two, you hit lower in a different spot than where you intended, and so then you injure the the the, the animal rather than drop it, yes. which then leads to additional yeah. challenges, and, right? And there's more to it also. If you're going to have I've ate a lot of animals. I'm not going to lie. I've ate tons of them. If you hit an animal that takes off running or their adrenaline kicks in, you get all of that adrenaline in the muscle because the animal doesn't know when it's just going to stop, you know, because the, it's going to run out of blood. It's going to pass out. It's, it doesn't know that. So it, but all it knows is that something happened and it takes off. It doesn't feel right. As it's running away, you're having all of that adrenaline pumped into the muscles. Well, the muscles is what you eat. Well, that is not as tasty as if you shot something, it dropped in its tracks, and it just rolled, it's dead. Yeah. So that there's no adrenaline dump, there's no nothing that. And then as soon as you get to it, that's where you, know, you need to do the best of preparing that animal. So if you get one that's ran off, you've got all that stuff that's going on. You don't know if you get a bad hit and possibly hit it in the guts or a back leg or something. That's where making sure you make the right shot Knowing, knowing what distance that you are, uh, you are deadly at. I mean, you can't, if you're literally going to go out to kill something, you better make sure that you can make that one shot and make it happen. Right. And so if that means you need to be 50 yards and closer, be 50 yards and closer. If you can stretch it to 250, 300 yards kind of thing, then stretch it. Yeah. But you have a right, uh, you have the obligation to make sure that you're doing something that's ethical to not only the animal, but everything else around, you know, cause it's not, if you're going to go out and harvest something, you need to do it the ethical way, which is make right. sure you're not extending through distances that, that, that you shouldn't be shooting. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. That makes sense. Um, my, my grandfather, uh, Tom, my dad yep. has a box of bullets that my dad, he says they're the only rounds he's ever bought. It was a box of 50. And there are still just a couple of left his entire life. And really? because, because, and so he, he has the box and he's got the last couple of rounds in there. He was a sharpshooter for the army. And my dad said he zeroed his rifle in one time. And then he used it once to, hu to go hunting and he got it. He, my dad says he's got his deer every single time, always one shot, one kill, put the rifle back. And that's just how he did it. And it's freaking amazing. I, I, when, when my my dad's done with it, I want that box because that's pretty. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, that, would awesome. that would be something I would have on one of my shelves. Yeah. Something with a picture, of maybe him with a deer or something. You know, it's something I would frame because to me that's an accomplishment that that I've never been able to do. I, I, I've had to shoot animals twice. I've had to do. Uh, I've had to do tracking jobs. You know, because sometimes even if you hit them right, they will still go. You know, they'll still you know, travel some distance. So it's, you just don't know. There's certain, uh, certain aspects of a hunt that you just can't control. Yeah. You don't know how, you know, same thing with, if I come punched you, 
You may go down, you may not. On the other hand, if I punch somebody else, they may stand back. It, it, it's all different on how the animal reacts to that certain, you know, that certain bullet. Yeah, so makes sense. It, you know, sometimes it makes a difference. Sometimes it don't. Yeah, yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about like, so somebody who's really novice to this, right? Okay. And, and they, they have some sort of an ethical or moral thing that's that they're, it's conflicting because they know their food comes from harvesting animals one way or another. They also know massive feedlots are the worst way to do things because your, your food is less healthy and the, the treatment of the animals poor and their health conditions are poor. So they're conflicted, right? Because yes. then they have this thing about hunting these wild animals. Or they are majestic and they're beautiful. And I think people get it construed that we don't, as hunters, value that as much or more than anybody else. So talk to me yes. a little bit about and share with us, like, your perspective on the value of, you know, hunting and game management and the, the purpose of that. Okay. The biggest thing is when you have a state, we'll take Utah, for instance. And they say, we have enough habitat to sustain 300,000 animals. And during that, in order for them to get and maintain 300,000 animals, those 300,000 animals are going to breed in the spring, they're breeding in the fall, they're going to have babies in the spring, and now that 300,000 is now 375,000. Mm -hmm. Well, there are predators out there with coyotes and wolves and uh, bobcats, bears. There's, there's tons of different things out there that will take down certain animals for deer, for instance, they can only, they can only account for what they can account for. Well, they, they don't know how much a predator is going to take out. So they use the human aspect. So what they can do is they can manage a herd. So they have a, a healthy herd, which is not too many does, not too many bucks, and they can manage it through a hunting season. So in order to do that, they can maintain and keep a strong herd there, but they can't do that without hunting to make that work. So, it, it works really well with having a uh, conservation model where you have a group of biologists say, we want 300,000 post-season animals because there's winter range. Everybody, especially in Utah, knows that the winters are never the same. Hot, you know, sometimes you get a hot, hot winter, sometimes you get a long, cold, miserable winter, and it will wipe the herds out. Well, if it wipes the herds out, they will cut tags because they want to build the herds back up. That's what's called conservation. Without that, without the money that hunters put into it, without stuff, we would lose all of our animals. I, mean, I know people don't believe that, but there's been lots of animals that have been reintroduced. There's been lots of animals that have been protected because of conservation for that. So I'm a very huge proponent for conservation that way. The second is if you have a conflict on where your meat comes from, it's totally understandable. And before my, both of my daughters have both harvested animals. Before both of them would harvest an animal, I asked them flat out, I was like, are you ready to actually take a life? And they're like, yes. I mean, they've shot some other things, you know, rabbits and, and right. some squirrels, you know, things like that before. But I asked them, I said, this is a little different. I said, this is something that's going to help feed our family. This is something that, you know, this is going to be with you forever. You will know this. You will have this. This will be something. So I said, are you okay with this? You're prepared. And they're like, yes. And once we did that, once they shot it, the the emotional feeling they got from it was one of like, for instance, I'll, I'll share Casey's when Casey shot her last buck, it was her very first deer. She made a tremendous good shot. She sat in, uh, we watched five or six different bucks for a full day. She finally said, I want this particular one for whatever reason. She just had her heart set on the one. 
She could have shot four or five others, but she didn't want to. She wanted to have this one particular one, and she ended up getting it. When she shot it, she made a great shot. It went straight down, and she was so excited. I've never in my life, and I've been around her my entire life, you know, so in all of the things she's accomplished and done in her life, I've never seen her smile like that. (laughs) I got so many people that I sent pictures to, and they said flat out, they have never seen my daughter smile so much as that. Wow. And it was not, it was not only because she, she accomplished her goal in getting it, but she got to do something she knew she made. She told me flat out, she said, Dad, I know I made you proud. And I'm like, it, it, it was, that was one of the most wonderful feelings I've ever had. <laughs> so we got it, uh, we, it. And she ended up taking it in Colorado. We actually didn't end up eating that deer. We found it. We got back to Colorado because we, we were staying with my buddy that lives there. And he asked me, he came to me, he goes, I got a question for him. Like, sure. And he goes, how bad do you want that deer? I was like, what do you mean? And he goes, we have a couple people here that have lost their jobs because they've got to do a lot of coal mining and things there. And he's yeah. like, is there any way you would donate this deer to them? And I was like, get the paperwork. I'll do it because you have to sign over, you know, here's the tag. Here's this. We signed over the deer to them. They do stuff. And we got a letter from them, I don't know, three or four months later that said, hey, we really appreciate this. This is going to help our feed our family through the winter. This is going to do it was it was such a, a great thing. I showed it to Casey and she sat back and went, This is awesome. You know, yeah. so she got to feel because I'll admit we've got four freezers that are full of animals. They're it's full. So did we need it? Not necessarily. Yeah. But I've also helped out numerous people that, you know, I've got lots of people that call me every year going, Hey, deer, elk, antelope, bear, I don't care. Whatever you got, I'll take. Whatever you don't want. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I love doing that. But that's where we get to do it. On that last bull elk you seen, when I got done, I, I, what I do is I bone out all the meat off of the bones. I get it all there. It was 100%. There was no gristle. There was no fat. There was nothing on it but straight, 100%, the leanest meat you've ever seen. And we ground it in a burger. We end up having 216 pounds of, and we put it all in vacuum seal bags. We put it in the freezer and Corshell, our our cousin is eating some. She loves it. Uh, uh, A couple of the other aunts, uncles, the fire stations. So I give it out all the time to people to, to say, Hey, this is some of the best, most lean, great protein you're ever going to get. Cause elk is some of the best protein you can ever get. Yeah. Well, I know exactly where it came from. I know exactly how it was handled. Uh, there, there's no hormones. There's no GMOs. There's none of that stuff into it. And it tastes incredible. Yeah. And so when I, when, I, when I look at it, you have 200 pounds of elk sitting up. That is, it, it's just this huge amount of meat. And then you grind into this burger that is, it takes a day to do, but it is so good. You know, my entire family loves it. My parents love it. My brother, they're like, I'll take some more. I'll take some more. I'll take some more. That's even awesome. The people, yeah, even the people that don't really like it. I've even got one vegan friend who now has asked me for his third pound of that elk. He's <laughs> like, don't tell anybody, but he goes, dude, that is good. And I'm wow. like, it's not, it's not a big deal. I, I keep it quiet because I'm like, right. I'm not, you know what? That's your choice. You don't yeah. want to eat it. Fine. Yeah, but, to each their own. Right. Absolutely. But so the point is nothing ever goes to waste, whether it's for your family or somebody else's, obviously it gets eaten. How I'm just curious, how much of your protein is what percentage of your guys' family protein intake is what you've harvested yourself? 
a lot. I yeah. would say, I would say 70, 80% at least. Yeah. Now there, there's times we go to the store, you know, and there's times you see a rack of ribs there or you see a big Philip Magnon or something, you're like, or a porterhouse. You're just like, I, <laughs> I, you know, it, yeah. you know that, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Or when you go at my house, my daughters love anything you can. And that's why we did most of it in ground beef. If it's the back straps, I make roasts and really fancy steaks out of the back straps. Other than that, we do the burger because they love, they love making spaghetti, lasagnas. Uh, they love hamburger helper type stuff. They love uh, sloppy joes. They love, and so we make a ton of that just because we use ground beef like crazy. And mm -hmm. it's just, so they, they, when they see the ground elk, they don't see it any different than ground beef. Other than uh, in today's world, it, it's kind of, when I look at, some of the most expensive ground beef you can find. It's five, six, seven dollars a pound. Yeah. Well, if you take elk, you which is comparable to buffalo, buffalo is 10, 12, 15 bucks a pound. But if we did 10 and I had 200 and some odd pounds, that's a lot of money savings that I don't have to go to the store all the time and here's $20 in ground beef, here's $20 in ground beef, here's 20. I don't have to do that. Right. I just walk downstairs, open up my freezer, and oh, look at that! Yeah, yeah. Not to mention the skills developed, the the memories and the experiences of the quality of your life that you're you're yes. not going to get that experience going and buying all your food. Like no. you're missing out on a a much larger part of of that yeah. process, which is exactly. life experiences and and moments with your daughter and like really things that fulfill us as human beings. Um, yep. And so, and you're, but you're very intentional, right? I see your posts all the time and you're like, all right, it's fall. It's time to put in for next seat or spring time to start putting in for the hunt. Where are you going? This is in, you're intentional yeah. about creating your life experiences with you and your family as you, as you plan yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have, I'll bet I have 50 people that I talk to personally about their application strategy type thing to, for different States and stuff. I'm on the phone. They're like, right now is application time. I'm on the phone half a dozen times a day talking to somebody somehow about this unit, this state, this, because I want them to go out and experience it. Sometimes I'm with them. Sometimes I'm not. Yep. Sometimes we do a group of us to go together, but it's, it's something that it, it's shaped me and molded me and who I am. And I want everybody to experience that. Some of the worst, most miserable times in my life have been while I've been hunting. Yeah. Those are memories that never go away. Those right. The ones you sit back and like, you remember that? And you're like, oh. <laughs> but, so you just look back and go, that's, you can see how far you can push yourself. You can yes. see all those things. And it's, there's so many things that I glean from being a hunter, a conservationist, an outdoorsman, that most people think it's just that I'm a bloodthirsty hunter to kill. I eat, now you're talking about eating good stuff, I eat the tags. Like Nevada, for instance, got I got their proclamation. They send yeah. you a tag, and I end up eating the tag because I didn't shoot an animal that I didn't find was worthy of me being there. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes that's being a trophy hunter. Sometimes, but I'm out there for the experience. Yeah, I'm not out there just for this because there's so much more to get from it. So it's mm -hmm. not just about pulling the trigger. Now, if my family was starving, yeah, it's about pulling the trigger and getting one. Right. But as of things right now, where anybody Right now, that that has hunter safety, that can go out and obtain a, a gun, and go to these spots. There's plenty of public ground around, plenty of places to hunt. 
if they can do that, they can get this stuff. Now they can get all this meat for their families. You don't have to pay a butcher to do it. You can do all this stuff. I do it all at my house. It's not hard to cut it up. Now we did buy a meat grinder for the, for the hamburger, which I'll admit that helped a ton. Yeah. But you don't, for the amount of money you spend on a grinder, which you can use year after year after year, you can do all that stuff. Like I've made ground chucker. I've made ground grouse. I've made, you know, like a, a pheasant is pheasant and chucker are, they're exquisite. They yeah. are sweet. You know, everybody tastes like chicken. Well, it tastes like chicken, but really, really, really good chicken. <laughs> so that kind of stuff is invaluable to me. So yeah. I get to experience everything. But when I come home, I've got the bounty to give to my family and go, now I look at that and go, yeah, if things ever got bad, I got a lot of people that would come knocking on my door and say, can you help me? I'm like, yeah. That, you awesome. know, that kind of stuff. I, I love it. Yeah, and that's awesome. Um, so let me uh, kind of, to wrap up, let's talk specifics for like the, the, the person going out, they're ready to get started. What would be, uh, just to kind of sum it up, the number one caliber you would recommend, just if they had to choose one, right? Their budget's limited to one rifle, which one would you recommend that that be? Uh, let's say, let's do two. Let's say West Coast and East Coast. East Coast, I would say a 308. West okay. Coast, I would say, I, I'm a fan of the 270. I, I, I love the 270 more than anything. It's light recoil, flat shooting. It will take any animal out here. Same thing with 308 over where it's at. It's light recoil on the East Coast, and it will do anything that you'd ever want to out over through there. So any any mid caliber, any of those is is going to be fantastic. Now you'll get people argue the thirty out six, thirty out six and a two seventy are almost twins. Yeah. So it's you know it's I like a Ford, you like a Chevy, the same yeah. kind. <laughs> right. But you're you're always going to have that argument. But anything with that, as long as the first thing you want to do is get a hunter safety card, go through a hunter safety. It will tell you about ethics. It talks about crossing fences because gun safety is paramount. I mean it's. Yeah. When you're out there and you know you're willing to take an animal with it, you got to make sure you're not taking something that you don't want to. Right. You know, including any of your hunting party or anybody else that's out there. So, hunter safety is extremely important and very valuable lessons that you learn through that. Then, you want to go and obtain uh, a gun that you want to use. Now, if you want to do birds, you want to get a shotgun, mm -hmm. twelve gauge shotgun, and a pump will work just fine. They're not that expensive. You can get a good one for. 350 bucks. You can get a good rifle for uh, starting at a 350, $400 and then go up. Uh, you can get a nice scope that, you know, there's tons of different brands and it's all on what you want to put into it. Get some of it and then go out and do a little target practice to find out what you are capable of and do it. You know, you can sit at a bench and get sighted in and figure out what you can do in perfect conditions, but then go out and do it when you're in hunting conditions, walk around, and say, I'm going to hit this and see what you can actually do because that will tell you what your real range can do. Having a set of binoculars is very important. Not only that you can see your, your quarry, whatever you're after more, but you can, again, identify what you're looking at. For instance, if you get to a spot and you're hunting bucks and it's legal to shoot a spike, it's hard to see a spike sometimes. So having good binoculars is going to help you out with identifying what it is. If you see something that's in the dark brush and you're coming through, you're like, is that an elk? Is that a moose? Is that a deer? 
you're going to be able to look at it and actually see with binoculars what it is. So the, the binoculars are very, very helpful with that. Another thing, depending on where you're at, is an, uh, there's lots of different apps out there that talk about hunting boundaries. So you want to make sure you have hunting boundaries, the topography, kind of like a GPS thing. I use one that's called Base Map. It does a tremendous job on showing me terrain. I can push a track on it, so it'll track me just like a GPS. I can mark different places on it. So if you're in dense forest, you're sneaking around and you're not paying attention to what you're doing, all I gotta do is look at it and backtrack right back to where I was at. So have, or when you harvest an animal, you can see, all right, where is the closest road? Where is the closest trail? Where's the closest river? How do I get around this? So having something like that is extremely valuable to uh, making things, especially places you're not familiar with, which if you travel around, a lot of times you're not familiar with, which is some of the reason I like doing it. Yeah. Uh, other than that, you want to make sure you got some good clothing because at, in Utah, it can snow. In certain places in Utah, it can snow 365 days a year. <laughs> it can also be 120 degrees sometimes down, you know, back in your old neck of the woods. Mm -hmm. It's miserable hot down there. So you have to make sure that you're having the right clothing and preparations for when you're down there to do it. When you're hunting, the one thing that I like about it is you kind of are off the grid. You have to rely on yourself to cook. You don't have power, you know, because I don't have a trailer. I don't use right. a trailer. I use that stuff. So I have to make my own fires. I have to, you know, fire up different things to make boil water to cook some of my food, do things like that. It's, you know, it's nice to be, uh, and uh, as much as people love their cell phones, I like being away from it. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't have to have the phone ring. I, I can be alone with nature and just enjoy. Right. So it's a peaceful time. But other than that, once you have that, you need to get a permit and a license from the fishing game. Depends on what states. We'll say Utah again because that's where I'm at. Uh, you want to apply for the application. And there's here's a Nevada one, for instance. But it has all different things on. And you can email, talk to, you can get on their websites. You know, Nevada Game and Fish, Wyoming Game and Fish, Utah Game and Fish. It talks about applications on how to put in for antelope how to put in for elk they have things that tell you exactly how to put in how to obtain a tag how much it costs for a tag things like that if you're if you're a resident of the state you're gonna hunt in it's pretty cheap to, to, to hunt if I go to Arizona Colorado New Mexico what now if you're a non-resident the prices jump up dramatically yeah 10 times, 20 times it's expensive yeah but it's it, it just for, for whatever reason, non-residents, they get beat when it comes time for application stuff. But you just want to go to the websites, find out when their application periods are. Most application periods are the start of the year, January through about May, first part of May. And then after that, they give you results. And most hunts start about mid-August, first part of August, and go through about late November, first part of December, depending on where you're at. Yeah. Man, that's great. You know, we were talking about something. I didn't want to. I didn't want to skip over it so much because uh, I think it's important. And you're talking about some of the most miserable experiences, but you know, that's the 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 um like I said, the podcast started out as between the dream and the actions of doing. Well, those yeah. actions that you need to take are on the other side of the things that you grow from. You're not going to get the experiences in life you're looking for unless you go through some suffering. Absolutely. And, 
So when you're out there going through those hunts and they're just so miserable, but then like you said, when you look back, those are the memories that you carry with you and not just the memories, but the experiences make you a stronger person, right? Absolutely. How, ex how anxious are you about all of this coronavirus stuff? Uh, I'm kind of torn between it. Yeah. I wish the, if the media would lay off of it and not make such a big deal of it, right? I don't think it's anywhere near as bad as what they're making it out to be. Sure. Do I, have I made preparations around here? Have I, you know, talk, we have a few elderly people in my neighborhood and I've told them flat out, if you guys need something, you guys need yep. some food, you guys need some stuff, let me know. I'll go take care of it for you because yep. they're elderly. I think the elderly or people that are sick are way more susceptible for that forum. And I don't want to have anything like that happen to them. So, cause they're, right. they're fantastic people. Right. So I want to make sure that's taken care of. Do I, being a firefighter, do I think I'm going to get exposed to it? <laughs> yeah, I do. I mean, I, it's, you know, we go to sick people all the time. That's part of our job. But like you with the military, this is it, the firefighting job is one that we're called upon at any time, 365 days a year to go to who knows at, at any time. With this, it's kind of like going to war because this is something a little, some people are apprehensive about it. And I've told my crew, bottom line is, guys, this is the time where we step up and go to war and make the best of it. Because this is what's asked of us. This is what the yeah. public has looked at us as firefighters, the respect that firefighters get. And so, because we are doing it. You don't see the nurses, the doctors, the police officers, the other people who are, even the, the people who are working at Smith's and Harmon's and you know, getting food for people, they are still out doing something because that's what society needs. Yep. And it's, it's one of those things that if, it's, if it gets us and it makes us uh, sick because of this, well, we'll do our best to get past it and move forward. But it's right now I'm not anywhere near as concerned as what I hope I'm not later. Right. I, hope, I hope this is something that ramps doubt. I wish in the next week or two we hit a peak and it starts coming back down. Yeah. Yeah, and I noticed that, yeah, and the reason I asked, but I noticed you didn't even go to the, the worry of being sustainable or having to, you know, supply chains. Because there's so many people I talk to, they're not even worried about the virus because they're not in those environments. But where their yeah. anxiety and their concern is, is they don't know how to take care of themselves if they can't just go to the store and get everything they need there. They're totally yeah. lost, right? And so um, that's a big part of why we, we, we started this this conversation is to teach people because when everybody around me that I can affect becomes more self-reliant and sustainable, safety increases, right? And the ability to serve one another increases. So this is a, pro this is a process of educating as many as possible so that they can relax a little bit and then focus just on the medical side of the, the concerns with the virus. But if you're worried about all of that, you're worried about getting it, you're worried about how to feed yourself, you're worried about where to get your toilet paper, you're, you're piling on so many things that, you know, you have to be responsible. That's what it's about. It's about taking responsibility for yourself. So if you're anxious about something, go learn how to do what it is or, or learn more about what it is that's making you anxious. So I just noticed that what you shared was, well, in my job, what I do is go to those environments, but none of it was, oh man, I don't know where I'm going to get my food. I don't know where I'm going to, you know, if I could take care of my family, you know, you can handle that, which is why we're having this conversation. So, yeah, cool. So. Awesome. Um, Jason, you, so where does it, you work in Salt Lake? Cause a lot of people in our group or listen to this are from Utah. So you work uh, outside the department. Okay. Uh, but 
you said you worked specifically with a uh, part-time with a web, uh, rifle shop or something like that? Yeah, I, I work part-time at a little gun store in downtown Salt Lake City called Gallinson's. Gallinson's. The oldest store in the state that's been open for over 100 years. It's a little gun store. It's second, 166 East, 200 South. Perfect. It's, you know, they've got guns, scopes. They've got all of the things that you need to go hunting without any trouble. Nice. So, cool. And that's why I asked. If anybody's in Salt Lake and they want to come see you, that's where they can find you. Absolutely. Perfect. Um, well, this has been awesome. I'm going to have another call with you. We'll go more in detail. Maybe you and I will kind of talk about where to go next, right? Because uh, – <laughs> I'm not going to say I'm embarrassed to say it because it's where it's, you know, a season of life, but I put in for my first deer hunt since 2007 this season. And, uh, you know, my, my dad took us all the way up until the draw started and he, he decided he wasn't going to mess with the draw. So we stopped and then I, I made one attempt to do an elk hunt at Vernal. We were a few days late. So they're all standing inside the mining territory, just looking at us, you know, and they're, they, we'd given them enough time to get inside there. So we couldn't find any. And so I, I'm excited to get back out there and I definitely personally appreciate the information you shared. Yeah, wonderful. And it, like I say, oh, one day we can get out and do it together. So yeah, well now I'm a resident. I'm much closer. We can go do that. That'd be awesome. Let's do it. Cool. Okay.